Well, before we went to Israel, Pat had a full head of hair. <laughs> what does that tell you? <laughs> oh, we had a blast. I'll tell you what. It was a great, life-changing, life-changing experience. And we were just talking about it. We both want to go back. And I guess uh, he's going back with a bunch of you. From, you all ought to sign up for that. Uh, boy, I'll tell you what. It'll, it'll change your life. It'll change your life. I mean, your, your Bible reads totally different. When you've been there, you'll read a passage. Oh, I was there. I remember that. And it's just absolutely, absolutely incredible. Life-changing. Right, Pat? Yeah. Yeah. Bethlehem has a back door. I'm going to tell you about that tomorrow morning. (laughs) And that does have to do with Pat. I'll tell you what. Incredible. (laughs) Oh, he was the life life blood of his whole trip. Not an, not an inhibited bone in his body. <laughs> well, it's great to be here. Uh, last time I was in this area was in 1997. I was speaking at the uh, Lincoln Berean Church, and that was the February after Michigan and Nebraska had tied for the national championship. I don't know how many of you remember that. And I'm a Michigan fan. I love Michigan football. And so... Uh, I was there that Sunday, and I'd been there a couple of days, and I got up Sunday morning to speak, and I said, you know, uh, Lincoln's getting in my head, but Ann Arbor's in my heart. And I said, the distance from my head to my heart is about that far, and I said, that's about how much better we were than you guys this last year. Well, that got it going, man. Some guy got up in the back row, meandered down the aisle, came up on the platform, took off his Nebraska jacket put it over my suit, and he said, well, he's ready to preach now. <laughs> so I opened it up, and I said, made in Kmart, what is all this? And anyway, there was a bunch of coaches there from the Nebraska football team, so it was a lot of fun. It was a great weekend, so that's, that, you know, that gets in your mind, you remember that. So anyway, thank you for having me. It's going to be a stewardship weekend. We're going to hit it hard. This morning, there's a lot of principles that we're going to talk about that... Uh, We all need to be aware of, uh, we're in the middle of an economic tsunami, it's not going away, things are starting to improve a bit, Uh, but a lot of people saw it coming, not the severity of it. If anybody says to you, oh, I saw the severity of what we're going through coming, no, you didn't, no, you didn't. You might have seen a downturn, you know, the housing market had to hit a bubble at some point, Uh, but to say that you, you, you could predict the severity of this downturn is ridiculous, nobody could predict that. This is my sixth recession in my working life. I graduated from high school in 1960. My dad was the superintendent of the largest die-casting plant in the world at the time in Toledo, major supplier of the automotive. He had about 4,000 employees. He was responsible for. There were four other plants around uh, Ohio and and Michigan that he was overly responsible for. And uh, he had to to retire when he was 60, and when he was uh, 52 in 1960 because of a disability. And so I was just graduating, and so they offered me a job because they didn't think I'd be able to go to college. So I went to the University of Toledo Night School and worked in the automotive industry for the next seven years in Toledo. My job was the rear windows for the Ford Mustang. I don't know how many of you are aware of that little car, but going back to 1964 when it came out, I was in purchasing, and my job was to buy all the components of that little vent window in the back and then get it assembled at our plant and ship to the River Rouge assembly plant in Detroit. So after I did that for a few months, they gave me the Lincoln Continental and the Ford Thunderbird to be over the rear window. That's where I started to cut my teeth on financial issues. Same time I was going to the University of Toledo Night School, and I, I took a course in income tax, and I fell in love with income tax. 
Now, you have to have a screw loose to fall in love with income tax. But I did, and I was doing tax returns for my buddies, and in 1967, my pastor asked me to do his tax return. I didn't know how to do it. I had never seen a minister's tax return before, totally different than us lay people. Housing allowance issues, all of that, and I was captivated by that. And so I said, I'm going to find out more about what's going on here. And so I wanted to make sure his return was being done right. So I poured into the regs. There was not much written about it back then, and it it took me a few months to put it all together. And then the word began to spread around Ohio that the guy in Toledo by the name of Rickard does pastor's tax returns for free. So I started getting inundated, and then I went down to southern Ohio, left the automotive, went to work at Cedarville uh, University, a Christian school down in southern Ohio. Some of you, I'm sure, have heard of it. I taught there for five years in the business department, and then in 74, went out to the West Coast, which is now the Master's College and Seminary. 1975, I was invited to a pastor's conference at the Silomar Conference Center near San Francisco. They gave me 45 minutes to speak on a topic involving preachers and money. So I did a seminar on the pastor and his income tax. 45 minutes later, I had finished it, 10 o'clock in the morning. They had allowed a half hour for questions in the program, and those 400 pastors asked me questions for three and a half hours. That's when I realized how great the need was. Went back to my office. I was inundated. I mean, I was just overwhelmed with guys that needed help. A couple months later, a pastor said, come to my church and teach my people what the Bible says about money. So in the fall of 75, we launched the Family Finance Seminar Series, which is the same year that Larry Burkett launched his ministry out of Atlanta, Georgia. And I'm sure you're familiar with that name. He's with the Lord now, but Larry and I became really good friends and shared notes and compared things all the time and did my first couple family finance seminars, got questions about wills and trusts. So I poured myself into that arena. So in the spring of 76, I added the will seminars ministry to my repertoire and just to local churches, just to God's people. That's been my heart. A few months later, a pastor said, come to my church and teach my church leaders about church finance. So I started doing church finance and leadership seminars. Did my first one in Moscow, Idaho. There really is a Moscow, Idaho, right in the heart of the mountains. Spent two days with those leaders and began to realize that some of those guys were not biblically qualified to be leaders in their church. Chairman of the board just left his wife. Was living with another woman. He was still chairman of the board of that church. Bible-believing church. Another guy was a 32nd degree mason and propagating it right there in my seminar. So I added to my repertoire the qualifications of a godly leader from 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Little did I know a ministry was beginning to develop. Well, in 1977, I spoke in a church in Walla Walla, Washington. Businessman took me to lunch after the morning worship service and challenged me to do this thing full time. So we launched it in the fall of 77 up in the Tri-Cities, about 200 miles east of Seattle. Kept it there for 10 years. Went on the board of the college in 1980. 1984, the president retired. We went on a search. I was chairman of the search committee because I was vice chairman of the board. And the Lord led us to John MacArthur. So we called John to be the president of the college 1985 and 1986, we started the Master Seminary. Pat's well aware of that. And uh, so the Lord just used all that. And then in 1987, John asked me to move down to Southern California from Seattle area and travel with him and do the Shepherd Seminar Series. So from 87 to 91, we traveled the country and did the Shepherd Seminar Series. So that gives you a little deal about what I do. And our, my, my heart and our ministry, the hub of it's the minister's tax. We help about it. Eight or 9,000 pastors across the country with their taxes. We actually prepare about 2,500 returns a year. We do pastors from all 50 states. My bedtime reading's master tax guide, folks. If you can't sleep, get a copy. <clears throat> you get through the first two paragraphs, you'll sleep like a baby. 
you understand what it says, you'll wake up every two hours and cry, probably. <laughs> but that's our heart, and that's our ministry. And out of the ministry of the pastors comes all the requests to do the seminars. And so that just gives you a quick synopsis of what we do and what we're all about. And great privilege to be here. I'm a hunter. I love the hunts. There's still pheasants in Nebraska. Great pheasant hunting here, right? I have a pheasant hunting trip in South Dakota in about four weeks. Their churches invited me there to speak, and they picked the end of October because they knew because of pheasant hunting season I'd come. You know, so I said, "Yeah, I'm coming with my shotgun." You know, so anyway, that uh, tells you a little bit about it. So thank you for having me. We're going to whip through this stuff. We're going to share a lot with you today. Yes, we're in the middle of an economic tsunami. It's a wake-up call. People should, should wake up. Be aware that stewardship is a big issue in the Bible. There's 2,350 verses in the Bible about money and material possessions. Common theme, as you look at those texts, though those verses, is generosity. It's not how much I have. It's how generous I am with what I have. And if I'm generous and my passion is to be generous, I'm going to be a good steward. Because if I'm not generous, if I'm not a good steward, credit cards are probably controlling my life. And if credit cards control my life, I've denied myself of the number one passion is to be generous. And so we're going to talk about that. So why don't you take your Bibles, will you, and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. And we're going to read down through chapter 4, verse 2. 1 Corinthians 3.16, down through chapter 4, verse 2. Do not know that you are the temple of God, or the Spirit of God dwells in you. When you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, it didn't take long to realize He encompasses your very being, even your thought life. And it doesn't take long to realize that what we have or what we are is because of the grace of God. If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. Some translations say God will bring him to a place of ruin. How could God allow you to be brought to a place of ruin? Well, if you're living a hypocritical life, he'd expose you to your family and friends. If you're cheating on your income tax return, he could expose you to the IRS. The temple of God is holy. Which temple you are? Let no one deceive himself. We live, live in an unbelievable generation of deception. Folks, we're lied to every day in this culture. We're lied to by the liberals across this country, about creation, about the Bible, about all of that. But we even deceive ourselves in how we handle money. It's called self-gratification. Anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, for it is written he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord Notice the thoughts of the wise that they are futile or useless. Therefore, let no one boast in men. Be very careful who you put on pedestals. Michigan football players are not heroes. Nebraska football players are not heroes. They're celebrities. They've been given an ability that most of them don't even recognize where it came from. And some of them will go on to the pros and make a lot of money. And all of a sudden, the world will look at them as being men of wisdom. They're kids. Immature kids, people we boast in, people that we put on pedestals are those who love Jesus Christ and teach the principles of his book and live the principles of his book. Those who should be men that we envy. For all things are yours anyway. We have all the answers to the basic issues of life, where we came from, why we're here, where we're going. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours. And you are Christ and Christ is God's pretty precious. 
chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And the key verse for this morning, moreover, it's required in stewards that one be found faithful. The Greek word for steward is manager. The Greek word for faithful is trustworthy, loyal. You could read that second verse, moreover, it's required in managers that one be found trustworthy. We are to be stewards and managers of all that's contained in this book. Like I already said, a lot of it has to do with money. 2,350 verses of it. That's a lot. So obviously God is infinite wisdom. We're going to need a lot of help, right? And it's there. I've often asked the question, where did God sow the seeds for this ministry? It goes back to my junior high and high school years in high school. My dad had a great job, made a good living. We lived well. Remember, my dad would come home at the end of the month and give my mother the paycheck. My mother would go down to the bank, deposit it, sit down at the dining room table, pay the bills. Back in those days, you didn't have credit cards. You had charge accounts. Every store had its own charge account. And when you opened a charge account at a store, you would be given a little metal plate about the size of two postage stamps that come in a little leather pouch. On the front of the leather pouch was the name of the store. And that's how you charge things. My mother's purse was full of those little leather pouches. I think she had a pouch for a little leather pouch for every store in Toledo. Probably within 100 miles. I don't know. I remember going shopping with her. She'd drag me along and she'd buy something and she'd put it on charge and she'd walk up to the counter and the gal would add up the bill and then my mother would search through the purse for this little leather pouch and people were waiting behind us and I'd say, Mom, why don't you have the leather pouch in your hand for this store when you, then you don't have to hold up the line and she never would do that. So she'd look through the purse and get that little deal and I'm standing there impatiently waiting for her to put this charge. So then we'd get home and in the, in the month, she'd get all these bills. She'd lay them out. And I can remember, I'd sit there and watch her do that. I was captivated by that. I'll pay this one 10. I'll pay this one 5. I'm not going to pay this one this month. I gave him some money last month. And she'd go through that exercise every month. I can remember once in a while, she'd break down and begin to weep. Tears would come down her cheek because she couldn't pay all the bills. And I'm sitting there watching this. Now I'm 14, 15 years old. And I can remember thinking to myself, something's not right here. How can my dad have a good job? I assume he makes a good wage. We live well, driving in new cars, living in a nice brick home and nice clothes, and she can't pay the bills. Then I remember I'm 15 years old now, and my cousin Dorothy had just graduated from Moody Bible Institute. And Dorothy felt led to go into missions to Costa Rica. Dorothy was my mom and dad's favorite niece, my favorite cousin, Wonderful lady, still is. She's retired in Florida now. And mom and dad sat down at that dining room table at the end of that month and was discussing how much they could afford to support Dorothy for. I sat there and listened to that discussion. They came to the conclusion they couldn't afford to support Dorothy. Mom was embarrassed and shocked. She began to cry. I'll never forget it. I could tell you as well as yesterday. I'm watching this. I was shocked. And I thought to myself, again, something's not right here. And then I can remember thinking to myself, I'm not going to let money control my life. I didn't know what that was all about. I'm 15 years old. And then as I got older, went through high school, college, 
It all began to come down that, you know what? Stewardship is an important issue. So my wife and I got engaged. 1962. High school sweethearts. Letter to Christ on our second date. It was either leader to Christ or I couldn't date her anymore. Mom and dad were having a heart attack and I was dating a non-Christian. And so I'll fix that. I'll lead her to the Lord. And so solve that problem. And so um, we got engaged. During that year and a half of engagement, I said, honey, we're going to put together a financial plan for our life. So we did. We talked about all the issues we could think of that would affect our marriage financially. That became the financial plan for our life. And that became the plan for our marriage. We determined we weren't going to go into debt for our honeymoon and for our wedding. Got $1,000 in cash wedding gifts. I'll never forget this. Took 500 of it and seeded our emergency fund. Took the other 500 and spent it on our honeymoon. 1963, a $500 honeymoon was a nice honeymoon. Today wouldn't get you out of Omaha, right? (laughs) Talked about how many children we'd want to have. And we didn't know how many God would give us. He gave us two. We talked about Joan being a stay-at-home mom when the first child was born. So when Pam was born, stay-at-home mom. That was important to us. We talked about a budget. We're going to live on a budget. We're not going to let money control our life. And not letting money control our life means we need to have a budget. We're going to be regular givers to our church. That was very important to us. We're going to start the month by being generous to the church. Talk about getting my degree, finishing my... I was at night school, University of Toledo, taking major, majoring in business, and I wanted to finish that at some point. Going to night school takes you 100 years to finish, and I wanted to make sure that I, was, I got my business degree as quickly as I could. We talked about that. We talked about what kind of cars we'd like to drive. And then we determined, because I was working in the automotive industry then, and I, we determined that cars were not a luxury, they were a need. So we always bought cars that met our needs. We didn't never bought a car to impress somebody or massage our egos. That was important to us. We figured it would take at least nine years after we were married to save enough money for a down payment for a home. Folks, a lot of youngsters today get married. They want to start where mom and dad took 25 or 30 years to get to. Grace Church, where I belong. They tell me it costs between twenty dollars and $25,000 for a wedding at Grace Church. Not to rent the facility. That's a huge church. Just the flowers for that puppy. The average attendant is, there's six attendants on each, no, ten attendants on each side. Guys and gals. Sit-down dinner is customary at the reception. That was my daughter. Hey, honey, here's 10 grand. Elope, right? (laughs) Sit down dinner for the reception. Stop at McDonald's on the way to the wedding. (laughs) What in the world? But that's how we put our financial plan together. We discussed all those issues. Then we put it down in writing. And that's what I'm teaching today. These are the financial principles my wife and I have lived for 46 years. And folks, I just want to tell you, I have had a great marriage. Wonderful marriage. Sure, we both know Jesus Christ. That's a given. But we also lived the biblical principles of stewardship. It comes back to Matthew 6.21. Where you put your money is where your heart is. And we determined that. And so we wanted to make sure that our life mirrored what the Bible teaches about how we're to live as stewards. So we've had a wonderful, wonderful marriage. It's because money's never controlled our life. And I trust it never will.
So take your hand out if you would. Let me take you through this. First page. People today are driven by materialism, money controls. It's what happened in this economic tsunami. Money controls. People borrowed money. They had no business borrowing. Lenders lent money. They had no business lending. Like I said earlier, it's a wake-up call. But you know what? It'll be short-lived. We'll work through this. This country will work through this. The two leading indicators is the stock market and unemployment applications. Unemployment applications have dropped the last three weeks in a row. Stock markets had a great run since March the 9th. Yeah, a little blip this week, but it'll come back. It'll, it's, it's headed in the right direction. We will get through this with or without stimulus. We will get through this. Problem is, it'll be short-lived once we get through it. Average recession is a little over 11 months. This recession is going into 35 months. So it's been a long one because it's so severe. We will work through it. Like I said, it'll be short-lived because it won't take long for people in America to get back into the same old habits. Borrowing money they never should borrow, spending money they never should spend, self-gratification, living high off the hog. Desire to acquire becomes the whole goal of their lives. This drive to always want more is based on the misconceptions that having more will make one happier, more important, and more secure. This is false. It is temporary happiness. I call it the emotional happiness treadmill. Once you jump on the emotional happiness treadmill, folks, it's very difficult to get off it. Come back from a trip, you can't wait to plan the next trip. And you get on that treadmill, and it just repeats itself. Very difficult to get off of that. People are getting off it today because they have to. Boredom sets in, and then you want bigger homes, nicer cars, more luxury, and then the cycle repeats itself. This is a six-part series for biblical stewardship, which I believe, after salvation, is the most important issue we face. And if handled right, it allows us the freedom to serve the Lord without the constraints that face many in our culture. Matthew 6.21, where I put my money is where my heart is, becomes key for this discussion. These are the principles that my wife and I have lived since 1963. I trust they will be as helpful to you as they have been to us. Nine steps to financial freedom. We are to be found faithful stewards, 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2. We just read that. Surrender daily all decisions, problems, and successes, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. With all your heart. Be willing to accept God's direction, Philippians 4, 6. If you don't have peace in your heart about doing something, walk away from it. It's not difficult. Just walk away from it. But no, we get stubborn. I want what I want. I want it now. I'm even willing to go into debt to get what I want now. And so emotions take over and we make purchases. We should. Hey, I face the same temptations you do. I'm no different than you are. I just have some principles I put in place to, to insulate me a bit. And I teach it. If I didn't live it, I couldn't teach it. Now look at the nine key financial principles. Number one, give to God first. Be generous. We'll talk about this tomorrow morning. I'm going to preach a message in the morning worship service of three convictions for biblical stewardship. Generosity, contentment, and integrity. So learn to be generous. You get paid, give some to the Lord's work. 1 Corinthians 16, 2, 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 through 8. This is the cornerstone for biblical stewardship. Generosity. 
It is the cornerstone because everything flows from there. If I'm dealing with the right heart, I'm generous. And if my passion is to be generous, money will not control my life. Credit cards will not control my life because my passion is to be generous. Number two, learn to be a saver, Proverbs 13, 11. NIV says, dishonest money dwindles away, but he who gathers money little by little makes it grow. Learn to be a saver. So you get paid, what do you do? Give some to the Lord's work, give some to yourself. It'll dictate what you do with the rest of the money the rest of the month. It starts the process right. You put some money away to maybe increase your emergency fund, maybe to plan for that trip, whatever. Number three, learn to spend less than you earn. Really profound, right? Came here just to get that one. Proverbs 21.20. Paraphrase says, The wise man saves for the future, but the foolish man spends whatever he gets. Learn to spend less than you you earn. How about for a long, long time? Folks, we're not taught that in this culture. That's why we're paying for it now. Number four, have cash emergency fund, Proverbs 21.20 again. Have some money put away that you can get at when you have a legitimate financial emergency. My wife and I seeded our emergency fund on our wedding with $500. Our goal was to get it to $1,500 in the first three years, which we were able to do because that was our goal. Then we got it to $5,000. Today it's $7,000. We have $7,000 put aside. It's called our emergency fund. We don't touch it unless we both agree it's a legitimate financial emergency. Why $7,000? Well, the older you get, the more expensive your emergencies are. (laughs) Number five, don't finance pleasure items. That was a non-negotiable for us. We determined we were not going to borrow money to have fun. We have never done that. What verse of scripture? Good old-fashioned common sense. You don't borrow money to have fun. Folks, you live in a 12-month playground. I live in a 12-month playground. Southern California is a playground. Omaha is a playground. You don't have to look far to find things to do. Don't borrow money to have fun. You don't ever do that. I love to hunt. I love to fish. I love to go to football games. Never borrowed a dime to do any of that. Won't do that. Number six, protect your family with adequate life insurance, 1 Timothy 5.8. We'll talk about that more a little bit later. Most couples I counsel with are underinsured. And I do a lot of counseling. Most breadwinners, how much life insurance do you have on your life? Most of them can't even tell me. That's stewardship. I have a stewardship responsibility to my family. Even if God calls me into his presence prematurely, I have a responsibility to my family. Number seven, have a retirement plan in progress by the time you're 40 years of age. Before then, but at least by the time you're 40. Proverbs 13, 16. Paraphrase says, a wise man thinks ahead, a fool doesn't even brags about it. We'll talk about that a little bit later, a little more. Number eight, own your home debt-free at some point. Proverbs 13, 16, my wife and I's goal was to have a home. We thought it'd take us nine years to save enough money for a down payment. It took us six. We wanted our home paid off by the time I was 54. We were able to do that. Why? We had a target. That's why budgeting is so important. If I have a target, chances are I'll hit it. If I don't have a target, I'll never hit it.
Number nine, have a workable budget. Proverbs 24, 3 and 4. Paraphrase says, any enterprises built by wise planning become strong through common sense and profits wonderfully by keeping abreast of the facts. All I'm saying here is have a financial plan for your life. That's all I'm saying. Start with these nine principles. Now, key principles to think about. Less than 30% of credit card holders pay off their entire balance each month. Less than 30%. Look at the page that says credit card statistics. Should be your next page. Look at these, folks. These are current. These are hot off the Internet. How many credit cards in service today? About 700 million. How many, how many different credit cards will, will be used today in all 50 states? About 200 million. About 200 million different credit cards will be swiped through the credit card machine, put into the gas pump. How much is being charged on credit cards? 2001, 670 billion. 2008, over 2 trillion. Went from 670 billion to over 2 trillion in seven years. What does that tell you? We're becoming a cashless society. That's what it tells you. Yes, yeah, technology. It's also by design. Credit card companies want us to become a cashless society. Why? When's the, when's the easiest time to spend money? Credit card. When's the next easiest time to spend money? Write a check. When's the most difficult time to part with money? When you pay cash. And they know that. They know that. How much money is owed on credit cards at interest? It's over $800 billion. That's more than it was charged in $670 billion. By the way, that's going to be the next tsunami. You watch. That'll be the next tsunami. It's already starting to hit. Credit card debt is epidemic. People who owe money on credit cards, the average indebtedness is over 12500 now per family that owes money on credit cards. Think about that. $12,000 indebtedness on a credit card? At, say, 17% interest, that's the average interest rate on credit cards in this country. 17%. That's $150 a month just for interest. You want to pay that thing off in two years? What are you talking about here? Talk about $700, $800 a month in payments. That's why money controls their life. What's happened to interest rates in this country in recent years? They've plummeted. Folks, you're seeing better mortgage rates now than we've ever seen. What's happened to credit card interest rates? Stayed the same. In some cases, gone up. Why is that? Supply and demand. And they know that. It's a numbers game with the credit card industry. Now, you don't get as many credit card applications right now as you were because of the economic tsunami. Their advertising budgets have been slashed. But you still get credit card applications. And they know it's a numbers game. They know if they throw out so many, so many will stick. We're numbers, folks. That's all we are to them. And if you become delinquent on a credit card, they are vultures. They don't care about you. They know how to go for your jugular, and they know how to get it. Why in the world would people allow themselves to be vulnerable to the credit card industry? Why would people sitting in the pews of churches allow themselves to be controlled by money, controlled by their credit cards, when they're taught stewardship probably at least a few times a year? I don't know. I don't know. 
Take 17% times 800 billion divided by 365 days, and you will discover the credit card industry takes in about $373 million a day of interest only. Folks, that's Saturday, Sundays, and holidays. That's an average per day. $373 million. You can't even comprehend that. Average number of credit cards per household is six. Used to be nine, dropped to six. I shared that statistic with a friend of mine. You'd know his name very well. And he said, no, I don't believe that. Two or three, I would believe. He said, not six. I said, get out your wallet. He had 11 credit cards. <laughs> Isn't that right, Pat? No, I wasn't, Pat. <laughs> <laughs> care the unpaid balances from month to month. Some say 70%. Credit card industry don't want you to know this. Once they get you $800 in debt, they have you for life. That's what their statistics tell them. Why? Because people aren't disciplined to pay it off. So their statistics say to them, once somebody charges up to $800 on a credit card, and they have that accumulated debt on their credit card, they probably have them for the rest of their life. And they know that. And they know that. Look at your next page. You have $5,000 credit card, 17% interest. What's your minimum payment? It's around 2%. used to be 6%. They dropped it to being 1.5% and 2%. Why? They want more interest. So let's say your minimum payment is $75 a month on that $5,000 credit card. A lot of the people in credit card debt, those over $12,000, make the minimum payment. They make the minimum payment. It'll take them 19 years to pay it off. They'll pay over $11,500 in interest on that $5,000 charge. Now, what did that trip cost? What did that remodeling cost? Now, put $75 in the savings account for 19 years. Earn 7% interest. And you can over your lifetime. Not right now, but you can. Compound it monthly, you'll save $35,000 on that $75 a month. Put $4,000 per year into, a, into, a, into the same account for 40 years, like a 403B or 401K pension plan, you have $875,000 40 years later. Look at the next page. What's a credit score? You read about this, you hear about it all the time. What's a credit score? It's a report that shows your credit history. Everybody in this room has one. Goes from 300 to 850. 720 or higher is the best rating results in the lowest interest. That's how they rate you. How do they know? How does a lender know how much to charge you interest? How much interest to charge you? Credit score. What's the big deal? A person with a 720 score versus a person with a 520 score on a $100,000 30-year amortized mortgage will save $85,000 in interest over the life of that loan because they have a high credit score. Monthly payment could be as much as $235 a month less. What impacts the credit score? Late payments are the biggest impact. You're never late on a payment. Never, never, never. You don't use more than a third of your available credit. Let's say you have three credit cards. You have three different credit cards. You can charge $5,000 on each credit card. So let's say you could charge as much as $15,000 on those three credit cards. Don't ever go over $5,000. It's due at the end of the month. And due past the end of the month. Excuse me. You don't pay it off. You don't want to ever break that one-third ratio. You break the one-third ratio, your credit score drops. 
So let's say you owe $5,000 on three credit cards total. And one of the three credit cards you're not using, so you cancel it. What happened to your ratio? Went from one-third to one-half. Your credit score will drop. Number three, consolidating loans and canceling credit cards can be a negative, although I recommend you cancel them. Number four, look for mistakes on your credit card. Annualcreditreport.com. Once a year, you can get it for free. Sometimes it'll say you're late when you weren't late. Sometimes they'll show loans on there that weren't your loans. Look at that bottom statement. Treat your credit as a valuable asset. Treat your credit as a valuable asset. Folks, what's usury? Not in your handout. What's usury? It's exorbitant interest. What are usury laws? Every state has one. I believe Nebraska's 18%. I think Iowa's 18%. That means a retailer in Nebraska cannot charge a consumer more than 18% interest on something they sell them. Every state has one except three. The three states are New Jersey, Delaware, Nevada. I have an American Advantage Citibank credit card. Cost me $35 a year for this thing. For every dollar I charge on this credit card, I'm on the road. All my charges go on this credit card. I pay the bill when I get the bill. Every dollar I charge, I get a point. Every mile I fly that I bought the credit card, that bought the ticket with this credit card, I get a point. For every 25,000 points, I get a free coach ticket anywhere American flies. My wife and I get five to seven free tickets off this thing every year. I fly a lot. Five to seven free tickets. I don't give them a dime of interest. Citibank calls me a moocher. <laughs> so when I fly over their headquarters once in a while, I wave out the window and thank them for their free ticket. My bill comes out the 22nd of the month, my credit card bill. I download it off the computer. So my charges for the new time period starts the 23rd of the month, and it goes to the 22nd of the following month, and I download the bill. I have the, to the 12th of the following month to make the payment. So I downloaded my September 22nd bill on the 23rd. And I got all my charges for the 22nd pay period, or the billing period. I have to October 12th to make the payment. Let's say I owe $3,001 on that bill. And I get careless. So I write the check out for 3000 And I send the check in. And they credit my account. And I have a dollar left that I didn't pay. What happens? I can pay interest on every charge during that pay period from the date of that charge. On every charge. Let's say I, make, I mail my payment on the 10th. And they get it the afternoon of the 12th in their office. They don't post it till the 13th. I'm late. There is no limits on ATM charges, overdraft charges, bad check charges. There's no limits. Congress is trying to address that. It'll be interesting to see what they do with it. It's a numbers game, folks. It's a numbers game. If you don't pay attention, it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you. 
Back to your... Thirty percent of credit card horse pay off their entire balance each month. I was doing a seminar in Seattle. A guy came up to me after a seminar. He says, "I'm in a dilemma." I said, "What's your dilemma?" He says, "Well, a thief broke into our house, stole my wife's credit cards." He said, "I don't know what to do." I said, "When did this happen?" He said, four or five months ago." I said, "Don't you think you should cancel the cards?" He said, "That's my dilemma." He said, "The thief spends less money than my wife." <laughs> Look at the next statement: The family who uses credit cards to pay for all their purchases can spend thirty to forty percent more than those who pay with cash. It's back to key principles to think about. Well, people with financial problems, 60% have borrowed more money than they can realistically repay during their lifetime. 40% have borrowed more money than they can make payments on. That's what happened in this tsunami. We will never handle anything less significant than money, nor more outwardly indicative of inner spiritual condition. That's Matthew 6.21. Children today want their living standards starting to be superior to that enjoyed by their parents. I already said that. Not the high cost of living that gets us, but living high. Focus not how much you make, it's how well you want to live. That's almost always the issue. 85% of divorces, the reason has something to do with money. That's where it starts. That's what counselors tell me. That's what biblical counselors tell me. 85% of divorces start with money issues. That's what you get typically in a marriage relationship. One's footloose and fancy free, the other one's very conservative. And you get that, they get at loggerheads. Can't resolve it, it can lead to much, much more serious problems. Whenever you value something too much, whatever happens to it happens to you. Car breaks down, you break down. There's a difference between a debt and an obligation. I want to make sure I say this. A debt is a delinquent financial obligation. Obligations, money brought and repaid according to your agreement. I want to say this very clearly. There is no biblical prohibition to borrowing money. There is none. It is not here. Someone says to you it's ungodly for a believer to borrow money. That's hogwash. Oh, no man, anything in Romans has nothing to do with borrowing money. Read the text of that chapter. The message is, to be learned, is if someone does something for you, to be willing to do more for them. That's the lesson there. It's not, it has nothing to do with borrowing money. Well, I'll get a question in my seminars. Jim, what do you do with a verse, neither a borrower nor a lender be? I got this last week. What do you do with a borrower nor a lender be? I say, oh, man, that's great. Give us the text. I don't remember. I know you don't. That's Shakespeare. <laughs> and he was never inspired that I know of. <laughs> A debt is an delinquent financial obligation. Obligation is money borrowed and paid according to your agreement. Borrowing money to buy a home is an obligation. You have a monthly payment. If you can't make your monthly mortgage payment, you end up business borrowing that, loan, that money to buy that home. That's not rocket science. Now, there's good debt and bad debt. Yeah, mortgage is debt, but it's good debt. It's an obligation. Bad debt is credit card debt that goes beyond the grace period. I'm not anti-credit cards. I'm anti-misuse of credit cards. Credit cards are either a great tool or a terrible master. For many people, it's a terrible master because it controls their life. Two really attitudes regarding money. Keep God out of it. My ego is supreme and should rule. That's what the world tells us. 
Convictions that affect my decisions. Learn to be content. 1 Timothy 6.6. 6. 1 Timothy 6.6. 6. Learn to be content. We'll talk about this tomorrow morning a little more. One of the strongest worded exhortations in Scripture is the issue of biblical contentment. Contentment is synonymous with obedience. Contentment is a focus on others. The Bible doesn't talk about self. It talks about others. That's content. When you're discontented, you're focusing on yourself. That's why discontented people are the people who have money problems. Number two, give God a chance first. Psalm 37, 7. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Learn to control your emotions, especially when you spend money. Salespeople work on our emotions. Play little games. You know, that hasn't changed in my lifetime. Once, once a car dealer gets you to take a ride in that car, about 80% of the deal's done. They know that. And they provide a great service. I'm not knocking car dealers. I'm just saying, it's how you sell. We need to control that. I'm the steward. The person selling me what he sells me is not the steward. I'm the steward. My wife and I do this. We go shopping at a mall. Today, we put a $100 price tag on it. Walk in the store, find something that costs more than $100. Before we make the purchase, we make one more walk around the mall. The minute you walk away from the store, you've taken the emotion out of it. Do I really need it? Is it really that important? There have been hundreds of times we never got back to the store. We'll get home and my wife will say, honey, we never got back to the store. Yeah, a real important purchase, right? You do little things like that just to help yourself control your emotions. Number three, avoid hasty speculations, Proverbs 28, 22. The miser is motivated by greed. That's what that says. Paraphrase. Stick with what you know. If you don't understand something, walk away from it. you got money in the stock market, your broker needs to communicate to you so that you understand what he's talking about. I tell my broker, I have a little stock, I tell my broker, if I can't understand what you're talking about, you're not going to have me as a customer. You'll lose me. You need to get down to my level of what you're doing. I think I understand the market a little bit anyway. People say to me, what about the stock market? I taught at the college level for 11 years. Taught it. I went to Wall Street. I did everything. You know what my conclusion was? I know nothing about the stock market. But when I got money in the stock market, I want to make sure my broker communicates with me so I understand what he's saying. I can read his statements. If I can't read his statements, he's useless. That's why I say there's never a dumb question. There's only dumb answers. Right? Sure. Buy out every purchase. 1 Corinthians 10.31. Can you afford it? Is it the best buy? Can you really use it? Have you shopped? Is it a need, a want, or desire? 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whatever you do, eat or drink, whatever you, whatever you do. Whatsoever you do. Do all of the glory of God. Do not cosign. Five times in Proverbs, you see the verses there, warns about cosigning notes, striking hands. A man void of understanding strikes hands. Why would you ever guarantee someone else's debt with your assets? They're already in trouble or they wouldn't need your co-signature. You don't do that. Now, when you read the text of those verses, it's talking about friends and neighbors. Those are non-blood relatives. Would I co-sign for my son? 
Under certain circumstances, I probably would. He's my son. He graduates from college, gets a job, has no credit, needs a car. Would I help him buy that car? Sure I would. Would I let him get along? Would I co-sign co- for it? I probably would. I could give it to him, but why not teach him some basic principles here? Son, you borrow some money to buy a car, you make that payment. Get that car paid off as quickly as you can. That's a lesson for him. If he, if he reneges, it's not going to cripple me. He also knows if he reneges, I wring his little neck. <laughs> but be careful about being a co-signature. Be careful. Warning. Number six, don't be deceitful. Contrary to popular thinking, one can be both successful and honest today, totally open and totally honest. A lot of game playing going out there, folks. And it takes place in the pew of the churches. Play games, word games. Don't tell the whole truth. Don't tell the whole story. Tell part of it. We're clever. And the cleverness has come into the church. Be honest, open, not deceitful. Number seven, seek good Christian counsel. Proverbs 13, 20, Ecclesiastes 9. Multitude of counselors, there's wisdom. Don't be afraid to ask for counsel. Don't be afraid. You know, I'm, I'm, in, a, I'm in a, I think it was a Bob's Big Boy or a, I forget. Wendy's, it was a Wendy's. A couple of years ago. In, in L.A. Automobile insurance in L.A. is a joke. Very expensive place. So I'm having a hamburger and a Coke, and I'm sitting in a booth, and across was two guys, and this one guy's telling his buddy about the great automobile insurance he found. He said it saved me over $400 a year. I heard him say that. I pick up my Coke and my hamburger, and I go over, and I introduce myself, and I sit down to deal, and I said, uh, I'm very curious about your discussion. Where did you get your automobile insurance? I'm, you know, so he told me. So I went to that company, and I saved about $400 on my automobile insurance. Hey, I'm not afraid to ask. Come on. That's counsel. Now let's put your stewardship to work. Before we do that, I think we'll take that break. Why don't we take about a 10-minute break? Is that okay, Pat? All right. Good. Let's take it and then come back, and we'll get right to the worksheets.